This is The Rounds Table. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, Roundtables listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to another week on the show. Today's show is particularly exciting for a few different reasons. For one, we have the lovely Emily Hughes, who's our producer and basically the backbone of the entire show, uh, back on today to cover a very interesting article I think that the listeners will enjoy. And she's also invited a very special guest later on, which she'll interview and take us through another article. That's Matthew Stanbrook, who works for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and I think that you'll find her coverage of an interesting study to be of value for you. So, Emily, welcome back to the show, and as always, thank you for all your dedicated hard work as our fearless producer. Thanks so much, Karen. It's great to be back on air with you. So why don't you introduce the article that you chose for this week? It sounds like it's got something hot in store. Absolutely. So the title of the article I chose is Trial of Solanezumab for Mild Dementia Due to Alzheimer's Disease. It was published January 25th, 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think if I was ever going to create a drug that was a MAB, I would just keep it simple. I would say like ABC Umab or Kiranumab or something that's much easier. Solanezumab. I'm not sure if I can say that 10 times fast, but maybe you can because you've covered this uh, in depth. Tell me, Emily, what is the bottom line for this solanezumab study? So the bottom line for this solanezumab study is in this double-blind placebo-controlled phase 3 trial involving over 2,000 patients with mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, solanezumab did not significantly affect cognitive decline compared to placebo. So for clinical practice, this means that we're left with the current gold standard for Alzheimer's dementia treatment. Well, I certainly see a lot of patients with Alzheimer's dementia or other forms of cognitive decline, and certainly my grandmother died of Alzheimer's dementia, so I've witnessed firsthand just how terrible a disease this is, to be frank. Tell me, uh, Emily, what was the reason that you chose this article, and can you help frame it in the context of what's been done in the world of Alzheimer's treatments? Absolutely. So Alzheimer's dementia is a very common condition, and it's devastating for patients and their families, as you know. With their aging population, the number of people living with the disease is projected to increase, further increasing the burden of the disease on our healthcare system. As we know, our current treatment options are limited in terms of slowing disease progression, partly because the pathophysiology of the disease is not fully understood. So the neuropathological hallmark of Alzheimer's disease includes extracellular plaques containing amyloid beta and intracellular neurofibrillary tangles containing tau protein. Essentially, this hypothesis suggests that early on in the disease, amyloid beta protein is overproduced or it's incompletely cleared, leading to the formation of plaques. Therefore, treatments aimed at slowing the production or increasing the clearance of amyloid beta may slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease. So solanezumab, this monoclonal antibody that was tested in this trial, was designed to increase clearance of soluble amyloid beta from the brain at a stage before deposition in plaques. And I should mention that two prior clinical trials of solanezumab demonstrated benefit of the drug in subgroup analyses, and the current trial aimed to refine the inclusion criteria to better identify the population that may benefit. And I should also mention a fun fact for our listeners. Emily used to study learning and memory in snails. If you can believe it, snails have memory. And she would go to some special pond or lake in the middle of Saskatchewan somewhere because apparently that's where the best snails for studying comes from. So I think that she also has a personal interest when it comes to research around this article. Would you say that's fair, Emily? 
I would say that's certainly fair. And I'd also like to add that snails are much smarter than you would think. I think they're probably smarter than me overall. So <laughs> uh, tell me, Emily, what was the design of this study? How did they go about answering whether amyloid plaques with an antibody could be removed? So this is a double-blind placebo-controlled phase three clinical trial. And it took place at 210 sites in 11 countries. Each site contributed about one to 30 patients. And who were the patients that they included in this trial? What were some of the key exclusion and inclusion criteria? Right. So the trial included male and female patients. They were 55 to 90 years of age. And all patients met diagnostic criteria for probable mild Alzheimer's disease, according to the National Institute of Neurological and Communicative Disorder and Stroke and the Alzheimer's Disease and Related Disorders Association. All patients in the study had an MMSC score of 20 to 26 out of 30, and enrolled patients had biomarker evidence of cerebral beta amyloid deposition. Patients were excluded from the trial if they had depression. Wow, so we are really dealing with a what we would call an explanatory trial. We are focusing right down on a certain population and trying to see if this drug is efficacious in them with a little less generalizability. How did they determine if there was biomarker evidence of cerebral beta amyloid deposition, as you mentioned? They did a PET scan, and they looked for amyloid in the CSF through an LP. Wow, quite interventional as far as uh, screening out your population. Okay, what did this population end up looking like as far as those who were included in the trial? Mm -hmm. So looking at the table one, on average, patients were in their early 70s. There were slightly more females than males. And about 90% of the patients were Caucasian, and approximately 69% had the APOE4 allele. Almost 80% of patients were concurrently taking an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, or memantine, at the time of the trial. And what can you tell me about this APOE4 allele? Why did they decide to highlight that? Is it somehow related in the pathophysiology of the disease? Yeah, so this allele is found in patients with Alzheimer's disease. So we kind of have an idea of what the intervention is going to be in this randomized trial, but just take us through the details. Exactly what were the treatment arms and the comparator arms? Sure. So patients were randomly assigned in a double-blind fashion to receive either IV infusions of solanezumab at a dose of 400 milligrams or placebo every four weeks for 76 weeks. And what were they measuring as their primary outcome with the efficacy of this drug? Right. So the primary outcome was the change from baseline to week 80 and the score on the 14-item cognitive subscale of the Alzheimer's disease assessment scale, or the ADAS-COG-14. To give listeners a bit of background on this scale, ADAS was designed to measure the severity of the most important symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. ADAS-COG is a subscale consisting of tasks measuring the disturbances of memory, language, praxis, attention, and other cognitive abilities, which are often referred to as the core symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. I should mention that a clinically meaningful change corresponds to a change in a range between 3.1 to 3.8 points on the 90-point scale, and higher scores indicate increased cognitive impairment. Okay. And what about any interesting secondary outcomes that come along with these types of designs? Secondary outcome measures included scores on the MMSE and the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study Activities of Daily Living Inventory. Wow, that is a mouthful. And this assesses activities such as using public transportation, managing finances, or shopping. So in essence, we're looking at changes in cognitive impairment primarily, and then secondarily, the things that are related to cognitive impairment, either one of the most commonly used cognitive impairment testing, the MMSE, or some of the consequences of having cognitive impairment, like your activities of daily living or your instrumental activities of daily living. Exactly. All right, Emily, take us through the main findings of this study before we forget. 
Okay, so of the 4,101 patients who underwent screening, 2,129 underwent randomization, and 87% in the solanezumab group and 85% in the placebo group completed the trial. There was no significant between-group difference at week 80 in the change in score from baseline. So that is, the score on the ADAS-COG scale was not significantly different in the solanezumab group compared to the placebo group. Therefore, the secondary outcomes were considered to be descriptive and were reported without significance testing. What is interesting, though, is that the MMSE score changed more in the placebo group than in the solunezumab group, indicating perhaps some protective effect of the solunezumab, and a similar result was noted on the ADCS-ADL scale. Fair enough, Emily. I'm not all that familiar with the ADCS-ADL scale, but the MMSE scores, uh, well, they did change a little bit more. They're only really half a point, so overall that probably wouldn't be of any meaningful clinical difference in cognitive scores. So a disappointing trial, but is this the first trial that's used this drug in Alzheimer's dementia? It's not, actually. This is the third completed phase three clinical trial of solanezumab. It differs from the other trials in that the population is slightly different. So prior trials included patients with mild to moderate Alzheimer's dementia, and this trial only included patients with mild Alzheimer's dementia. Additionally, this trial only included patients with biomarker evidence of amyloid burden. In the previous two trials, solanezumab did not significantly decrease the decline in cognition or function. However, in pre-specified secondary analyses, patients with mild disease who were treated with the drug had less cognitive decline by approximately 34% and less functional decline by 18% than those who received placebo. So the current trial does not support this finding. Makes sense. So they were trying to build on an exploratory finding that they found in the first two trials and hoped that it would come out to be true. And unfortunately, we see a negative result here. Yeah, exactly. So to me, Emily, this seems like a fairly well done trial overall when you're running a randomized trial. They they do all the things you're supposed to do. So let's focus a little bit more on why you and the authors think that this was a negative trial. Why did it not work when there was so much hope? Sure. So the authors do provide some compelling limitations as to why they may not have seen an effect. So first, the observed peripheral reductions in soluble beta amyloid may not have been sufficient to reduce deposited cerebral amyloid. Uh, The dose 400 milligrams administered every four weeks may not have been high enough or given for a long enough duration to cause a clinically meaningful effect. As well, the pathological changes in the mild stage of Alzheimer's disease may not be amenable to treatment with a drug targeting soluble amyloid beta. So there is some data from mouse models saying that at a certain point, the disease becomes self-propagating and it's not susceptible to intervention. So giving the drug at earlier stages of the disease continuum of Alzheimer's disease could address this limitation. However, it is difficult to identify patients at earlier stages when this trial already addressed patients with mild Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, fair enough. I also just wanted to mention that this is an industry-sponsored trial funded by Eli Lilly. So as with all industry-sponsored trials, we should be mindful of this when interpreting the results. But because it's a negative trial, I'm less concerned. Good point. So when it comes to the hypothesis of the pathophysiology behind the disease of amyloid beta deposition, do you think that this trial sort of puts a nail in the coffin, that that hypothesis should no longer be considered the leading one? Or do you think that there are still considerations to be made around targeting this pathophysiological pathway? You know, it's a tough question to answer. I think that the limitations that the authors do outline are reasonable, so I don't want to give up on the amyloid beta hypothesis just yet. 
I, I, I would agree. I think there's a lot of question marks as to why the drug may not be working be outside of the fact that, oh, that just may not be the right pathway. So, and there's certainly there's tons of research to support that this hypothesis is truly the one that develops uh, Alzheimer's dementia. So we'll see what's in store next. I got to say though, overall, what a terrible disease. And we don't have much when it comes to treatments other than supporting people through this slow, steady decline. Tell me maybe in a lighter hearted way, what do you think the main learning point of this article is? So I think the main learning point of this article is that we still have a long ways to go with the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. So although it wasn't the outcome that I was hoping for, I still think there are several important learning points to take away. So it's encouraging to me that the trends with regards to cognition and function were slightly better in the solinezumab group compared to placebo, even though they did not reach statistical significance. So as we've talked about, the biological plausibility for this drug is there if our understanding of the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease is correct. So perhaps the dose was insufficient to produce a meaningful effect or timing of the administration of the drug in the disease course of Alzheimer's was non-optimal. But in any case, more work, I think, is warranted in this area. And I'm really excited to see where the research goes. Excellent. Well, I'm really glad to see that you're excited uh, because uh, certainly for me, this was disappointing. And now you've given me a ray of hope to think about uh, where we're going with Alzheimer's disease. All right. Well, let's move on now to Emily's special session with Matt Stanbrook. And I'll uh, let her introduce the article that her and Matt are going to cover. Take it away, Emily. Thanks, Kieran. I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Matt Stanbrook. Dr. Matthew Stanbrook is the deputy editor at the Canadian Medical Association Journal, CMAJ. He's also a staff respirologist here in Toronto at Toronto Western Hospital. Dr. Stanbrook, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And, and let me say up front, I'm really pleased to be here because I'm a big fan of the rounds table. I listen to it regularly. And I think what you guys have done is really fantastic. Not only are you providing a really great service for clinicians across Canada and internationally, but you do it so well. You, you do this spontaneously with personality and you make the discussions interesting in contrast to a lot of other podcasts out there. So kudos to you guys for for what you've done and to the extent that you guys represent the future of medicine in Canada and you do, I think our future is in really good hands. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. What article are you covering today? I am talking about, not surprisingly, an article from the Canadian Medical Association Journal that was published in January of this year. It's by Casado and colleagues, and its title is Repeated Influenza Vaccination for Preventing Severe and Fatal Influenza Infection in Older Adults. Fantastic. And what is the bottom line for this article? So this was a multi-center case control study of more than 2,500 adults aged 65 or older, and it found that repeated influenza vaccination over multiple flu seasons significantly reduced influenza hospitalization and influenza severity. Okay. And why is this article so important to be talking about? So this is important because of the subject it addresses. So influenza, as we know, is a very important disease. It kills people in every country every year. And as usual, there are early reports of vaccine effectiveness. And as usual, one of the problems with the influenza vaccine compared to other vaccines, of course, is it's not really very good on average. The vaccine has only been about 10 to 20 percent effective. So with that poor effectiveness, you know, which varies somewhat, but year over year is, is suboptimal, 
I get uh, some pushback from a lot of patients who really don't feel it's, it's worthwhile. And one of the big reasons is because the vaccine doesn't work perfectly, works suboptimally. But all of that focus and all of those statistics really focus just on one outcome, which is, do you get sick at all with flu or do you stay healthy? There is more to looking at the benefits of the flu vaccine than that. There is whether or not if you get sick with the flu, you get less sick if you've had the flu vaccine than if you haven't. There's also the question of whether is it important to regularly get the flu vaccine every year as opposed to not being faithful in doing that in terms of the risk of what happens to you uh, with the flu? So this study um, addressed both of those scientific questions and is, is probably the best study to date to have done so. And for that reason, it deserves to be highlighted. Absolutely. So let's get a little bit into the meat of the study. What was the design of the study? Where did it take place? So this was a case control study, but it was prospectively enrolled. So they got the patients to uh, sign informed consent. They collected some of the data prospectively. So that, that is, is a strength. They did this in Spain at 20 tertiary care hospitals spread throughout the country. And they did it doing two consecutive flu seasons, those being 2013 to 2014 and 2014 to 2015. So fairly recent. Okay. And who are the key patients in the study? So they included patients who were over 65. They're community-based, but these are all patients who have been admitted to hospital. And they had to be admitted to hospital for at least 24 hours. So they had, this was a case control study as mentioned. So cases were those patients who had influenza that was laboratory confirmed, either with PCR or culture or immunofluorescence. And then they broke those influenza patients down into two categories, severe influenza, which they defined as being admitted to ICU for influenza, or death within 30 days. Uh, all the other patients they classified as non-severe influenza. They then matched each of those two influenza groups against controls, up to three controls per case, Controls were patients who similarly were admitted to the same hospitals, but not for influenza and not for an acute respiratory illness, but they had unplanned admissions for some other reason to some other part of the hospital. And the, the matching was done via sex, age within three years, date of admission within 10 days, and by the specific hospital. Okay, let's talk a bit about the population included in this study back to the table one. Can you tell me a bit about it? In terms of demographics, these were all over 65 as mentioned, fairly evenly balanced between patients over 80 and patients under 80 within that elderly group, almost equal between men and women. Um, they capture a detailed list of comorbidities. They do find some imbalances. So the patients who had influenza were more likely to have underlying chronic pulmonary disease, were more likely to have had pneumonia in the past two years, and were more likely to have received systemic steroids in the past month. In both groups of influenza patients, once they entered hospital, almost all of them received antiviral therapy as part of their care. Okay, and what was the primary question of this study? So they first compare patients with non-severe influenza against their controls, and that asks the question, is influenza vaccine effective in preventing influenza, period, that leads to hospitalization? 
They then compared the patients with severe influenza against their controls, and that asked the question, is influenza vaccine effective in preventing severe influenza hospitalizations? And lastly, they compared the patients with severe influenza against the patients with non-severe influenza, and that asked the question, does influenza vaccine reduce the severity of influenza, assuming you get sick with influenza? Okay, so let's go through the results. What were the main findings of this study? All right, so... In terms of outcomes, it's worth noting that uh, among the patients who got influenza, if you didn't get vaccinated, you were more likely to end up in the ICU, 16% versus 6%, and you were more likely to die, 14% versus 9%. Those are all crude estimates without adjusting for confounders. Now, the primary outcome, as we said, was vaccine effectiveness. The first key finding here is, the influenza vaccine was effective, but effectiveness was only seen among patients who were vaccinated in both the current year and at least one prior year. Next, how effective was it? You're going to want to know. So, for not preventing non-severe influenza hospitalizations, it was only 30% effective, give or take, which is not very impressive. But for preventing severe influenza, either ICU admission or death, it was much more effective, about 70% effective. In terms of reducing severity of influenza, assuming you got it, it was significantly effective in doing that. In fact, it reduced the odds of your influenza being severe by less than half, an adjusted odds ratio of 0.45. The last important thing to mention is there was a dose response noted. The more number of seasons you got the influenza vaccine, the less likely you were to have severe influenza at all, or severe compared to non-severe influenza. The only place they didn't find a dose response was for non-severe versus no influenza. For that, it wasn't significant. So those are the key findings. Well, these results are very compelling to me to certainly get my influenza vaccine every year. Are there any interesting points or observations you wanted to make about this study? Anything that caught your eye we haven't talked about yet? So there are a number of issues to uh, assessing these data. So first, all these studies are done by looking at people who present to healthcare with influenza versus some type of controls. And there's always confounding inherent in that. There's always errors in estimation. There's always representative issues. All of these come into play here. So these are all tertiary care hospitals. They're, they're missing the people who didn't get hospitalized. They're missing the people in primary care. We're not sure if this is population-based. We're not sure how, you know, other factors like socioeconomic status could play into this. We're not sure how, you know, this distributes throughout the country. So that's, that's one factor. But that said, that applies to every study, more or less, that looks at vaccine effectiveness. Another important issue is generalizability. So... This is a study that covers an influenza experience in one country in two specific flu seasons, looking at four specific flu vaccines. So we can't know for sure if the results would be the same, if there were different circulating strains of influenza, if the match between those strains and vaccines 
were different, perhaps the results would be different from, from what we see. So we, we don't really know how this will play out in future in different circumstances. But again, you know, we're, we're limited to what we can look at. And so this is the best look we, we have to date at a snapshot somewhere of this phenomenon. For example, Canada. So uh, the, the countries are different and the, the populations are different and maybe the, the epidemiology of the flu is different. That said, there are also some, some broad similarities between Spain in Canada and also between the flu epidemics during those years there and, and in Canada. The, the strains of flu were similar, the vaccines were similar, um, and the, the way the healthcare system organized is broadly similar. So in Spain, as in Canada, the vaccine was given free to everyone over 65. In Spain, as in Canada, their hospital policy was you swab the, the nasopharynx of every patient who comes in looking like they have flu or with a respiratory illness doing, during flu season. So those things strengthen generalizability. Mm -hmm, certainly. So given the, you know, the limitations we've outlined, clearly the strengths of the study that we've outlined, What's your take on the balance between the strengths and weaknesses? So we felt this study was probably the best evidence to date to sort of reinforce our messages to patients that it's not just that whether or not you get sick, but how sick you can get with flu that the vaccine can help you with. And that there really is evidence that the, getting the, the flu shot can at least keep you from ending up in the ICU or God forbid dying from flu, even if you do get sick with it. And that, we think, is a message that, that needs a lot of attention. And so that would be the biggest take-home message I think we, we should promote from this. Absolutely. So given that take-home message, who does this study apply to? So a strength of this it is it's, it is more or less population-based. And so they looked at community-dwelling people who come into hospital who are over 65. So that's a big stretch of the population. Probably the ones we're most concerned about as physicians, the one we most see suffering the worst effects of influenza. Who does it not explicitly apply to? Well, it doesn't explicitly tell us about younger patients who are the majority of the population. So it doesn't directly tell us whether it's as necessary for younger patients or, or, or children to get the flu shots, although we make analogous arguments that it, it can be helpful for everyone. Okay, so now the most important question, what does the study actually mean to you and will it change the way you practice in this area? I would say that this affirms more than changes what I do, but it gives me more evidence to support what I've been doing. And as a specialist in respirology, this is uh, an issue of great relevance to all of my patients because chronic respiratory disease is a major risk factor for really bad outcomes if you get influenza. So when I say to my patients, the flu shot is particularly important for you, uh, take what protection you can. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sandberg, for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun uh, being able to take part. Well, thank you, Emily, for bringing Matt onto the show. And thank you, Dr. Stanbrook, so much for coming on to the rounds table. We really appreciated your insight uh, and a unique insight of an editor at uh, Canadian Medical Association Journal on an article that was published in CMAG. Um, so a, a neat way to cover an article on the show. But as always, it's now time for my favorite part of the show. It's the Good Stuff segment, where we're talking about what we are reading about. And Emily, what is catching your attention this week? So I just read an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Education Outcomes in a Duty Hour Flexibility Trial in Internal Medicine. So just some background on this trial, you know, the great call debate, how much call is appropriate? How long can a single shift be? How many work hours a week are appropriate? 
And with duty hour restrictions, concern persists that inflexible duty hour rules in medical residency programs may adversely affect physician training. So this study measured educational experience in a group of residents governed by standard duty hour regulations and a group with more flexible hours that did not specify limits on shift length or mandatory time off between shifts. And what they found was that there was no significant difference in the proportion of time that medical residents spent on direct patient care and education between programs with standard duty hour policies and programs with more flexible policies. But notably, residents in flexible programs were less satisfied with their educational experience than were their peers in standard programs, but program directors were actually more satisfied. So I thought it was interesting findings and something worth bringing up. I agree, and not far off from residency you are, I think it would be very applicable to your future life that you're about to enter. Spoiler alert for our listeners, we're actually going to cover that article in a couple of episodes from now. So do tune in with Dr. Andrew Smagus and I, who are going to go through that in more detail and break it down for listeners so they're up to date on what's going on in medical education and duty hour restrictions around call. Well, Emily, uh, I found an article that was talking about, yes, deep learning and AI. It seems like everything we read about these days has to do with some sort of machine learning, deep learning, AI, or some computer who's doing things better and smarter than us. But this relates to my particular field of interest in palliative care. So a group of researchers at Stanford University are working on using a deep learning uh, algorithm and deep neural network that's trained on their electronic health record from the previous year's data to trigger palliative care teams for patients who are at increased risk of death in the next 3 to 12 months. The rationale, of course, is that physicians traditionally overestimate prognosis, so a deep neural network is going to be better than us at predicting death, and maybe this will help us trigger palliative care for people who are in need and nearing their end of life. So there it is, the ongoing evolution of deep learning and AI in medicine. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing, Kieran. Well, Emily, thanks for coming on the show, and thanks for everything that you do for the rounds table as always. And we will look forward to having you back on the show again very soon. The rounds table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Mayer, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us.